Guys, I just got to hug Isaac Schmidt. Oh, it's good to see you. How's the fam? Oh, that's great. Guys, Isaac and I met 11 years ago. We go way back. He threw up in my sweater once. Well, I was about to share that story. So I threw up in Isaac's sweater at... I wasn't wearing it at the time. He was wearing it, for the record. He didn't, like, throw up in (laughs) my sweater. That would be nasty. But it wouldn't be outside of the realm of possibilities with me and Isaac. (laughs) I don't know what you're going to do with that statement, but it it was just said, and I'm not taking it back. Uh, No, uh... My freshman fall retreat dance, which will ha- not my freshman, but your maybe your freshman fall retreat dance, happening tonight after the session. Anyone a little pumped? Yeah. Well, our theme was future. And my freshman year, I decided to go a different route with the future theme. And I thought, hey, this is October. You know what's in the future? Christmas. That is in the future. So I text my buddies. I was like, hey, I need a Christmas sweater. And they said, we don't have one. But somebody was with Isaac. And Isaac's like, well, I have a Christmas sweater. They're like, well, some freshman needs it. And he's like, okay. So I swung by his apartment, introduced myself, threw on his uh, sweatshirt, and then eventually threw up in his sweatshirt. So that happened. I did give it back. He has it. He still has it. He still has it. There are some glorious pictures of me just confusing everyone. As everyone else is wearing like space stuff and futuristic things, there I am, freshman Steve in a Christmas sweater at a futuristic dance theme. What's tonight's dance theme? Space Cowboys. Oh, yeah. Space Cowboys. That is a fantastic theme. Get ready. It's going to get rowdy. It's going to be out of this world. So, oh, yeah. Yeah, he's going to be rowdy and out of this world. All right. Hey, if you've got a Bible, we are continuing on in the story of Joseph. Genesis 40 is where we're going to be at. We've seen two areas now that God displays his grace through our brokenness. And tonight we're going to see God displaying his grace as relationships are restored. Tonight we're going to see Joseph encounter his brother now years after what happened in Genesis 37 that we saw last night. And we're going to see God's grace once again displayed through his restoring power to restore our relationships. So here's where we're at in Genesis 40. Joseph has now been thrown into prison, falsely accused, and once again... He finds favor. The Lord is with him. The Lord blesses him and everything he does. In fact, the prison warden puts him in charge of everyone in the prison. All the administration of the prison, Joseph becomes in charge. And once again, we see faithfulness, regardless of your circumstances, brings blessing. Joseph is faithful in prison and it brings blessing. Now, he meets two guys while he's in prison. He meets the Pharaoh's cupbearer and his former baker. These two guys were both in prison, and he meets these two individuals. And one morning, he wakes up and notices that they're distressed. So he says, hey, guys, what's going on? And they both had dreams that night, and apparently intense dreams that startled them. So Joseph says, hey, God, I serve a God who gives the interpretations of dreams. Tell me your dreams. So both the cupbearer and the baker both share their dreams with Joseph. The cupbearer goes first, shares this dream, and Joseph says, hey, your dream means that Pharaoh is going to elevate you out of prison and restore you to your former position. 
The baker hears that the cupbearer receives a favorable interpretation, so he says, okay, let me tell you my dream. The baker shares his dream, and it's the opposite. Joseph says, your dream means that you will be executed very shortly. And both of the interpretations of these dreams come true. The cupbearer is elevated to Pharaoh's right hand once again, and the baker is executed. We then get to chapter 41. And now Joseph has been in prison for two years. And at this point, Pharaoh has a dream. So Pharaoh has this dream with seven healthy cows and seven sick cows and then seven healthy grains, uh, heads of grain and then seven scorched heads of grain. And he's sharing this dream with everyone he can share it with. He calls in magicians and wise men and all of his philosophers trying to figure out what these two dreams mean. And then one day the cupbearer says, hey, Pharaoh, when I was in prison, there was a Hebrew slave there. And I shared my dream with him, and it came true. And the baker, he shared his dream with him, and it, his interpretation came true. Maybe he will be able to tell you what your dream means. So Pharaoh calls Joseph out of prison, and he says, hey, I hear you can tell me what my dream means. And Joseph boldly says, no, I can't. He says, no, he can't. But he says, but I serve a God who can. So tell me your dreams. So Pharaoh tells him these dreams about these cows and these grain heads. And Joseph says, here's what your dream means, Pharaoh. These two dreams are actually one in the same message. What it shares is that there will be seven years of abundance. That's what the healthy cows and the healthy grain, heads of grain represent. Seven years of abundance in the land. But then these sick cows that swallow the healthy cows, these scorched grains of heads that come after these healthy grains, heads of grain, they represent seven years of intense famine. Intense famine that will make the years of abundance be forgotten. So then Joseph says, here's what I think you should do. I think you should appoint someone who is wise and discerning, have them in the seven years of abundance collect grain from the people so that in the seven years of famine, you will have food so that Egypt won't be destroyed. Pharaoh loves this idea. And he says, man, I can't think of anyone to execute this idea better than you, Joseph. So in that moment, Pharaoh makes Joseph the second most powerful man in all of Egypt. And it's crazy. I mean, you think about Joseph's story. He's in a pit left for dead. He's sold as a slave, falsely accused, in prison for two years. And then all of a sudden, he finds himself in second command in the most powerful nation in the world. And God is using him to deliver Egypt and his people. So the seven years of abundance come. Joseph does exactly what he tells Pharaoh he will do. He collects enough grain, stores it up, builds storehouses. And then sure enough, the seven years of famine come. And this famine was so intense, it didn't just affect the land of Egypt. It affected the entire region surrounding Egypt, including Joseph's family in the land of Canaan. And that's where we're going to dive in tonight. Look at chapter 42. Here's verse 1. When Jacob learned there was grain in Egypt, he said to his sons, why do you keep looking at each other? Listen, he went on, I have heard there is grain in Egypt. Go down there and buy some for us so that we will live and not die. So 10 of Joseph's brothers went down to buy grain from Egypt, but Joseph, Jacob did not send Joseph's brother Benjamin with his brothers, for he thought something might happen to him. 
The sons of Israel were among those who came to buy grain, for the famine was in the land of Canaan. Joseph was in charge of the country. He sold grain to all its people. His brothers came and bowed down before him with their faces to the ground. When Joseph saw his brothers, he recognized them, but treated them like strangers and spoke harshly to them. Where do you come from? He asked them. From the land of Canaan to buy food, they replied. Although Joseph recognized his brothers, they did not recognize him. Joseph remembered his dreams about them and said to them, you are spies. You have come to see the weakness of the land. So here Joseph's brothers arrive in Egypt. They have been experiencing the famine. Jacob sends 10 of them to go to the land of Egypt to buy grain. And Joseph sees them. He remembers his dreams. His brothers bowing down to him. These dreams were fulfilled. And his brothers say, can we come and buy grain? He says, no, you are spies. He begins to question them. He learns that his father is still alive. He learns that his mother, Rachel, had another son, Benjamin, while he was gone in Egypt. He learns that his mother, Rachel, had passed away. And he sets up this this test. He's going to sell them grain, or he says that he'll sell them grain if they can pass this test. Look at chapter 43, verse 8. Here's the test that Joseph sets up. Guys, I totally missed the section. We're not going to 43 verse 8 yet. Got ahead of myself. That's not the test. This is awkward. (laughs) Just blatantly awkward. All right, so he sets up this test. (laughs) He says, here's what we're going to do. Leave one of your brothers here. Go home and get Benjamin. Go home and get Benjamin and bring him back, and then I'll know that you guys aren't spies, and then I will sell grain, and you'll be free to trade in the land. So the brothers agree to this plan to leave one of their brothers to go back. Joseph gives them enough grain to sustain them till they can get back, and he keeps Simeon with them. So they get back home. They tell Jacob, hey, this is what the master of the land said. He said, leave Simeon here and he, you can get him back when you bring Benjamin to me. Jacob is furious. He's like, why did you tell this guy that you have a younger brother? And they're like, well, he questioned us. He wanted to know about our family. Jacob refuses to send Benjamin. Well, time goes on. They run out of the first set of grain that they, they got from Egypt. And so the brothers go back to Jacob and they say, hey, send us. Send us back with Benjamin so that we can go get grain. And Jacob says, no, you guys just go. And they're like, well, we can't go without Benjamin. The master of the land will kill us. Send Benjamin with us. And finally, Jacob agrees. But he agrees under this condition. Now, look at 43 verse 8. I knew we were going to get there. And here we are. 43 verse 8. Here's the condition. Judah said to his father Israel, send the boy with me. We will be on our way so that we may live and not die. Neither we nor you nor our dependents. I will be responsible for him. You can hold me personally accountable if I do not bring him back to you and set him before you. I will be guilty before you forever. If we had not delayed, we could have come back twice by now. So Jacob hears that Judah is going to take responsibility for Benjamin. He gives them lots of gifts. He's like, take all these gifts, take them to this master. And so they're on their way with their youngest brother, Benjamin. 
So they arrive in Egypt. Joseph sees that their youngest brother, Benjamin, is with him. He tells his steward, hey, prepare a feast for these brothers. And these brothers, they're confused. Like, what on earth? Like, this is a totally different experience. Now we're feasting. The steward of Joseph's house brings Simeon and reunites them. And then Joseph joins them. Look at verse 26 of 43. When Joseph came home, they brought him the gift they had carried into the house. And they bowed to the ground before him. He asked if they were well, and he said, How is your elderly father that you told me about? Is he still alive? They answered, Your servant, our father, is well. He is still alive. And they knelt low and paid homage to him. When he looked up and saw his brother Benjamin, his mother's son, he asked, Is this your youngest brother that you have told me about? Then he said, May God be gracious to you, my son. Joseph hurried out because he was overcome with emotion for his brother. And he was about to weep. He went into an inner room and wept there. Then he washed his face and came out. Regaining his composure, he said, serve the meal. So Joseph and his brothers have this incredible feast in his house. They stay the night feasting and celebrating, not knowing that it's Joseph that they're dining with. And his official Egyptian attire, he was using a translator. They couldn't tell. They didn't know yet that this is Joseph, but they have this feast. And the next day, Joseph is ready to send them on their way. But he does a second test. Look at verse 40, or chapter 44, verse 1. Joseph commanded his steward, fill the men's bags with as much food as they can carry and put each one's silver at the top of his bag. Put my cup the silver one at the top of the youngest one's bag, along with the silver for his grain. So he did as Joseph told him. So Joseph loads them up with grain, and yet he sneaks his silver cup into Benjamin's bag. The Egyptians let his brothers go, and then they set off on pursuit. They catch up with him, they overtake them, and they accuse them of stealing Joseph's cup. And the brothers say, no, no one here did that. Why would we ever steal from the master of Egypt? Why would we do that? No, nobody. Check all of our bags. If you find it in anyone's bag, let him become a slave to him forever. So sure enough, the Egyptians begin to search their bags. They start with oldest and work their way one by one all the way down to the youngest. And when they get to Benjamin's bag, they open it. And sure enough, there is the silver cup. The brothers are astounded. They can't believe it. They're like, what on earth? And Benjamin's pleading. He's like, I didn't do this. So all the brothers ride back to Joseph's house with these Egyptian soldiers, and they're pleading with Joseph to have mercy on their brother Benjamin, saying, we have no idea how this happened. Like, we don't know what's going on. Have mercy on Benjamin. And Joseph is maintaining his accusation against them that their younger brother stole from them. The brothers are pleading with him, and they're saying, you have to send Benjamin back with us. And then look what Judah says to Joseph. Look at 44, verse 30. Judah is making his case to Joseph, and he says this, So if I come to your servant, my father, and the boy is not with us, his life is wrapped up with the boy's life. When he sees that the boy is not with us, he will die. Then your servants will have brought the gray hairs of your servant, our father, down to Sheol in sorrow. 
Your servant became accountable to my father for the boy, saying, if I do not return him to you, I will always bear the guilt for sinning against you, my father. Now, please let your servant remain here as my Lord's slave in place of the boy. Let him go back with his brothers. For how can I go back to my father without the boy? I could not bear to see the grief that would overwhelm my father. What is Judah saying? He's saying, let me take the place of my brother. Exchange my life for his life. Let me serve the penalty for my brother and in his place. And at this, Joseph is overwhelmed with emotion. Look at 45.1. Joseph could no longer keep his composure in front of all of his attendants. So he, called, he, so he called out, send everyone away from me. No one was with him when he revealed his identity to his brothers. But he wept so loudly that the Egyptians heard it. And also Pharaoh's household heard it. Jesus said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still living? But they could not answer him because they were terrified in his presence. Then Joseph said to his brothers, please come near. And they came near. I am Joseph, your brother, he said, the one you sold into Egypt. And now don't be grieved or angry with yourselves for selling me here because God sent me ahead of you to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land these two years and there will be five more years without plowing or harvesting. God sent me ahead of you to establish you as a remnant within the land and to keep you alive by a great deliverance. Therefore, it was not you who sent me here, but God. What a crazy response. Like this is wild. Here's the man who is the second highest, most powerful man in the most powerful nation. You see, most of us don't exact re revenge on people because we don't have the means to. Joseph had all the power in the world to exact vengeance on his brothers, but instead he's gracious towards them. Don't be angry with yourselves. It was not you who sent me here. It was God. What an amazing, crazy perspective. Joseph is saying, you weren't the ones who had the idea to bring me here. It was God so that there could be a great deliverance. So that he could preserve life through the position that he's raised me into. Joseph extends grace. Joseph extends forgiveness to his brothers. It's wild. I mean, there are so many terrible things that humans can do to one another, but this story that we've been looking at this weekend, this has got to be up there in the top ranks of the worst things you could do to someone else. And yet Joseph finds it within himself to extend grace and not vengeance, to extend forgiveness and not hatred. What an amazing story. How can we be the sort of people that forgive like Joseph? When people offend us, how can we find it within ourselves to extend grace and not hatred? Well, I want to show you three aspects of forgiveness tonight from the story of Joseph. If we want to be able to forgive like Joseph, three aspects from his story to help us become the sort of people 
who forgive others and show grace. Here are those aspects. First, what forgiveness requires. Second, what forgiveness costs. And then third, what forgiveness offers. What does forgiveness require? What does forgiveness cost? And what does it offer? Well, first, what does forgiveness require? Well, it requires a perspective shift. Right? Joseph has an eternal perspective. What does he say at the end of verse 8 and 45? Therefore, it was not you who sent me here, but God. Joseph has an eternal perspective, a perspective shift on life. That God is sovereign and powerful. That he can work in unseen ways. And that it's not just the good things that God can use in our life to advance his purposes, but God is so sovereign and so powerful that he can even use the brokenness in our life, the hardships, the sins that have been committed against us to advance his purposes. This is an incredible perspective shift. That we would be people like Joseph who believe that God can be working in unseen ways. And I doubt that Joseph could connect all the dots of how this was going to work out when he's sitting in a prison cell. He probably didn't know that this is how the story was going to end when he's in the pit. But he had an unshakable confidence that God is powerful enough and sovereign enough to use any event in his life for his purposes. And it was that eternal perspective that sustained Joseph that allowed him to look at the sins committed against him and say, this wasn't you, it was God who sent me here. Forgiveness requires a perspective shift. But not just a perspective shift in knowing that God is sovereign to use the brokenness in our life, but also a perspective shift about our sin against God. To see this, I actually want you to turn to Matthew 18. Matthew is the first book in the New Testament. And Jesus' disciples come to Jesus and ask him about forgiveness. And to help, his under, to help his disciples understand how forgiveness works, Jesus shares with them a story. And it's a story about a perspective shift. Here's what Jesus tells his disciples in chapter 18, starting in verse 21 of Matthew. It says, then Peter approached him and asked, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother or sister who sins against me? As many as seven times? I tell you, not as many as seven, Jesus replied, but 70 times seven. For this reason, the kingdom of heaven can be compared to a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle accounts, one who owed 10,000 talents was brought before him. 10,000 talents was a lot of money. One talent was the equivalent of, a tw- of working for 20 years. So if you think you have 40 working years in your life, this guy owed this king 500 lifetimes of work. He has an insurmountable debt against this king. So what happens? Ver- verse 25. Since he did not have the money to pay it back, his master commanded that he, his wife, his children, and everything he had be sold to pay the debt. At this, the servant fell face down before him and said, Be patient with me. I will pay you everything. Then the master of that servant had compassion, released him, and forgave him the loan. That servant went out and found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. 
one denarii was a day's wage. So 100 denarii, you could say, was, let's just call it $20,000. This is not nothing, but when you were just forgiven 500 lifetimes of work, $20,000 doesn't sound like that much. So what does this servant do? Well, it says he grabbed him and started choking him and said, pay what you owe. At this, his fellow servant fell down and began begging him, be patient with me and I will pay you back. But he wasn't willing. Instead, he went and threw him into prison until he could pay what was owed. When the other servants saw what had taken place, they were deeply distressed and went and reported to their master everything that had happened. Then after he had summoned him to his master, he said, you wicked servant, I forgave you all the debt because you begged me. Shouldn't you have also had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And because he was angry, his master handed him over to the jailers to be tortured until he could pay everything that was owed. So also my heavenly father will do to you unless every one of you forgives his brother or sister from your heart. What is Jesus telling us in this story? Well, he's telling us that whatever offense has been committed against us, pales in comparison to the offense that we've committed against God. A perspective shift. First, we need to know that God can work in unseen ways, but second, we need to see the magnitude of our sin before God. We need to have an awareness that there was an insurmountable debt that we owed God because of our sin, and yet he forgave us. And yet, when we hang on to bitterness, when we hang on to offenses committed against us, we are just like this servant. And $20,000, Jesus isn't saying the hurts against you, the sins that have been committed against you. He isn't saying those aren't real, that those aren't painful. No, those are real. It's just that they pale in comparison compared to our offense against a holy God. Why do we miss this? Well, when we think about how good we are, we usually compare ourselves to those around us. We do this horizontal comparison where we say, well, how good am I? Well, I'm better than that person. I've maybe done X, Y, or Z, but I haven't murdered anyone. I haven't done what that person's done. So we, when we compare our goodness to those around us, we can come away thinking pretty highly about ourselves. But how does that assessment shift when we stop asking, how good am I compared to other people, but how good am I compared to the infinite holiness of God? When we shift from a horizontal comparison to a vertical comparison, we begin to realize that there is an infinite gap between our goodness and the goodness of God. That there is an insurmountable debt that we owe God because of our rebellion against him. That sin is an offense against a holy God. And what we begin to realize is that the ground at the cross is level. Meaning whatever difference we might have earlier perceived between us and someone else is actually insignificant compared to how, how the debt that we owe God. Here's the perspective shift that needs to happen. That you see the offenses against you as insignificant compared to the offense that you've committed against God. And until you do that, you will be someone who keeps accounts. You will be someone who hangs on to bitterness. 
But when you know the forgiveness that you've received in Christ, it will actually give you the resources to extend forgiveness to others. And that's what Joseph did. He had an eternal perspective shift. He knew God was working in unseen ways, and he knew that his sin against God was far greater than his brother's sin against him. Now, this perspective shift was not the only requirement of forgiveness. Joseph's story teaches us something else about, something else about forgiveness. It teaches us that there is a cost to forgiveness. You see, forgiveness is not free. In order to forgive, there is always a cost to forgiveness. What did it cost Joseph? Well, it cost him everything. It cost him his life and his homeland. It cost him his family. It cost him relationship with his mother, with his brother Benjamin. It cost him missing his mother's death. It cost him imprisonment and slavery. And Joseph could have looked at his brothers and said, hey, this is what I'm going to do to you. I'm going to enslave you for as many years as you enslaved me. But that isn't what he did. Instead, in order for Joseph to forgive his brothers, he himself had to absorb the cost of their forgiveness. Forgiveness always costs something. Think about this. If you steal five bucks from me, there's two ways that we can be reconciled. One way is I say, hey, pay me back five bucks. I make you absorb the cost of our reconciliation. But the other way is I could say, hey, don't worry about it. Forget it. You're forgiven. But what had to happen if I'm going to let you off the hook for stealing five bucks from me? I had to absorb the cost. I had to absorb the cost of our reconciliation. This is what Joseph did. In order for him to extend grace to his brothers, he had to absorb the cost of forgiveness. Now, what would move us to absorb the cost of forgiveness? Right? When people sin against you, there is a cost. It might cost you your reputation. It might cost you pain. How could you be the sort of person, when you are hurt wrongfully, you are willing to absorb the cost of that reconciliation? Well, the only way is if you know that the cost of your forgiveness before God was paid by someone else. And we get a clue of who that was in chapter 44. What happened between Benjamin and Judah? Judah exchanged places with Benjamin. Judah said to Joseph, take me, let me take his place and absorb the cost of reconciliation. Let me pay the penalty for this sin. Let Benjamin go free. I will take his place. Judah absorbed the cost. And this is exactly what happened at Calvary. The line of Judah looked at humanity and the insurmountable debt that we owed against God. And he said, I will take their place. Let me take their place so that the boy can live. Let me take their place so that God's humanity can be free. And the Lion of Judah was betrayed in a garden. He had a crown of thorns pressed on his head. His back was beaten and whipped. He was forced to carry a cross. He was nailed on that cross, hand and foot. He was raised up between criminals. And the physical pain of that moment was the tip of the iceberg for Jesus. You see, the physical pain was nothing compared to the spiritual torment that Jesus was experiencing on the cross. The wrath of God was being poured out on him for every single sin. 
Think of the magnitude of that, the weight of what Jesus was carrying on the cross. Every wicked thought, every evil action, every moment of indifference and rebellion, Jesus was absorbing the cost for that sin. And yet the Lion of Judah, Jesus Christ, absorbed the cost of our forgiveness so that there wouldn't be a single sin that would go unpaid. And here is the offer of grace. The offer of grace is that Jesus will absorb your sin for you. He will exchange places with you. So that for every sin that you've committed, Jesus can say, I have paid. You see, forgiveness isn't free. Forgiveness costs. And until you realize that your, the cost of your forgiveness before a holy God was absorbed by Jesus Christ, you won't be the sort of person who can absorb the cost of forgiveness in your relationships. But when you are melted by the reality that Jesus Christ forgave your insurmountable debt before him, that he paid the penalty for that sin, you will actually have the resources to extend grace. To say, I'm no better than anyone else. You see, here's what grace teaches us. Grace teaches us that we are just as capable of any sin given the right set of circumstances. Jerry Bridges famously said once that there is no sin that he is incapable of committing because he was a broken and sinful man. That the only reason why the full extent of your wickedness isn't being expressed in your life is a result of God's restraining grace. That given the right set of circumstances, there's no sin that we are incapable of committing. You see, when you haven't had this perspective shift, when you aren't melted by the costly forgiveness of Jesus, you say things like, well, I could never do that. I'm not the, not the sort of person that would do dot, dot, dot. That's not how I would have responded. But when you see the, G, the grace of Jesus, that you've been forgiven an insurmountable debt, that he paid the penalty of that sin, you'll be the sort of person that can extend grace to others. Now, why would you do this? Right, because it sounds hard. It sounds painful. It sounds difficult to absorb the cost of forgiveness inside your relationships. It sounds hard to maintain this perspective shift. Why should you want forgiveness? Well, the third thing this story teaches us is what forgiveness offers. What's at stake? Well, what's at stake is that your bitterness will enslave you. You see, Joseph knew that there wasn't just one slavery that his brothers could send him to, but actually two. That he could be enslaved not just from the first time when they sold him to the Midianites, but that he could actually be enslaved to them because of bitterness. That it was possible for him to serve two slavery sentences if he allowed the bitterness in his heart to have a hold of him. You see, bitterness will enslave you. Bitterness will eat you and consume you from the inside out. If you hang on to bitterness, it will create a calloused, horrible life. Like we all know 70-year-olds who have just been bitter their entire life, and they're insufferable. Their existence is a living hell. That is what bitterness does. It consumes you from the inside out and makes your life a living hell. But what does forgiveness offer? Forgiveness offers freedom. 
that the sins committed against you actually don't have to enslave you for your entire life. That you can actually be a person of joy regardless of the offenses that are thrown your way. That you can be a person of peace and extending grace. This is what forgiveness offers you. It offers you a life of joy and freedom and grace. Guys, we've talked about a lot this weekend looking at this story of Joseph. And I don't know what God has been pressing on you over the last 24 hours. But what we want to do tonight is we want to create space for you to reflect. So we have some extended worship coming, but before we enter into that moment of worship, as the band is coming up, I'm going to actually allow you just to reflect and pray where you're at. Asking what God do you want to do in my life as a result of this story? What are you speaking to me? How do I need to be comforted this weekend from the story of Joseph? How do I need to be challenged this weekend from the story of Joseph? So where you are, would you take a minute to pray, to reflect as we prepare to engage in worship together?